Welcome. Before we start this second part of the podcast, let me say that there are some sections we've had to edit, record over, or bleep out, but it's been done pretty seamlessly, so hopefully you won't even notice. Inflation, deflation, and we're about to get into what is a safe investment. Oh, wait, what's your name again? Donald. There you go. That's what you were going to say? Sure. Oh, okay. All right, whatever. Don't uh, tell me. I don't care. No, no, no. I, I keep all secrets from you. I'm sorry. That's true. I mean, I'm not sorry. Screw telling you <laughs> secrets, especially ones that are being recorded <laughs> to be posted on the internet. <laughs> um. So before we got back on, uh, we had an interesting conversation, didn't we, Donald? Yeah, we were uh, we were talking about uh, safe investments. <laughs> I just I just threw you out there for nothing. <laughs> yeah, I was I was like, like, we didn't really like, talk right. about anything. Right. Right. We didn't have an interesting conversation. We oh, uh, damn it. I found a koozie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, we we uh, we didn't have any interesting conversations. I was just trying to mess with Donald. Uh oh, podcast machine. What are you doing? You messing with us? There you go. Buddy. It's going all over the place. All right. Well, either way. Um, so we were previously have been talking about debt, central bank, and uh, I think we threw some bears in there at some point. There was probably a little bit of bear assault thrown in there at some point. Ba- let's just, rear let's, bear assault. Rear bear assault. Rear entry. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, we've now graduated from one. <laughs> Hampton is... I've got chapstick on right he's now. He's put Carmex on his lips. Yeah. And is also trying to drink a glass of water. Do you, do you know what that's like? Does anybody hate that as much as we do? You put on chapstick and then you reach for the glass of water and you realize to your horror that if you try to drink it, you're going to get like water mixed with chapstick like in your mouth. Yeah, but and I then also just, also <laughs> just chaps. Yeah, he just he just pours it into his mouth. I look like a baby bird. I like <laughs> lean my head back and I just open my mouth and then I just try to pour water in, but I missed and it just went down my chin and all yeah. over me. He got maybe maybe a quarter of that water that fell out of that glass. That was pretty pathetic. I got to admit. Yeah. <clears throat> so in this good, good thing we're around a bunch of electronics. Yeah, good thing. So. In this age of turbulence, uh, people are looking for safe investments. And let me give a little precursor. I, I actually have a pretty good intro. For the last seven months, people have been pulling money out of the stock markets and into bonds, government bonds. And why might they be doing that? Because there was the shell shock of 2008. And then in 2009, there was a huge run-up. And a lot of the institutional investors, the fund managers, etc., they think that you need to get safe now because we've had the big run-up. Right. What's safe? Well, they think bonds are they safe. They think bonds are safe. So they're throwing a ton of money into bonds. And by the way, a general principle of the market, whenever you see everybody crowding into one part of the market, run. Go the other way. <laughs> because that's how the market Immediately works. buy what they're selling. Market is a cruel, cruel bitch. Yeah. 
and she likes to get everybody into a crowd and then just just throw a grenade. And then inserts them. Throw a grenade, right? And then have the bears come up and instigate, <laughs> instigate Operation Rear Entry. Bear walks in with a tub of Vaseline. Exactly. So a lot of people are searching for safety right now. I have, uh, I have several friends who uh, say, Hampton, uh, I'd like to invest. I think it's interesting that you invest. And you're so cool. But, uh, you know, it's too risky. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'd like to invest because it's too risky. Well, let me present the idea to you that if you have money just in cash, or even if you have money in a bank account that's giving you like 4% interest, that can be risky. Why might that be risky? Inflation. Inflation, exactly. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me rephrase that. Because the government keeps dipping its greedy little hands into your pocket and stealing your money. Well, that's not inflation, though. Those are like two different things. <laughs> you've gone. You've gone and seem to have gone on a tangent, I believe. Ah, uh, yeah. No, that's inflation. Inflation is like a tax, but it's a tax that affects what uh, what Mr. Keynes referred to, Keynes, referred to as the rentier class. It affects people who rent and work for a living and live paycheck to paycheck. They're the people who get hammered by inflation because in inflation, prices go up. Yeah. Right. So they get hurt big time. The people who are rich are also usually pretty wise with their money, and they're smart enough to get into things that uh, are safe during inflation, like gold and land and grain and oil. Yeah. Commodities. Commodities, right. Which we're we, going to get to that. Yeah, which I believe we talked about in our, our other podcast about stocks. Mm, stocks, did we? stocks, bonds, commodities. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, we, we did. No, that's going to be this one. We're going to talk about what's a safe investment, and we've got four general asset classes. Oh, did I just give it away? I think we, I think we did. <laughs> well, let's just go ahead. All right. There are four general asset classes that you can invest in. You can do bonds, stocks, commodities, and uh, rate parties. <laughs> what's the fourth one? You want to uh, you want to pause the podcast? <laughs> wait, wait, wait! We said stocks, bonds, stocks, bonds, uh, commodities, commodities, and uh, mutual funds is what you chose. Mutual funds, that's yeah. right. There you go. I'd go for life insurance, though. We're gonna, you know, we can get into that at the end of this. Yeah, I'm gonna make not... the case, and you're gonna be really drunk. Hopefully, not that he's drinking right now. Maybe, uh, maybe I won't make the case on the podcast. But I think that it is an astronomically risky uh, proposition, and do you know why? Because you're locked in. You, it is the most illiquid that you can possibly be. If you ever stop paying those payments, you lose everything. But, okay, yes, that is true. Uh, all right, no, we can't start up on this. We can't, we can't. Maybe right. at the very end if we've got a lot of time. Let's just go over asset class number one. Okay. Bonds. Let's get started on that. All right, bonds. Okay. Bonds are viewed as a safe investment, and that's why everybody's flowing into them right now. A lot of the money, a lot of the institutional money is going there. Um, why are bonds considered a safe investment? Well, that's obvious enough, right, Donald? Yeah, because it's based on the uh, good faith and credit of the old U.S. of A. There you go. And it pays a certain amount every year. You know up yeah. front exactly what that amount is. Guaranteed, low risk yeah. because of that guarantee. It's guaranteed. What could be less risky than that? Well, there actually are some risks associated with bonds. Um, and they break down into three classes. There's a risk of default, there's a risk of inflation, and there's a risk of uh, interest rate hikes. Hmm? Yeah. Dig it. So let's talk about interest rate hikes for a second. Okay. Okay. So uh, something you might hear if you listen to any financial news network is um, interest money, rates money, went money, up. Money, 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 money. Bye, bye, bye. Sell, sell, sell. 
I actually Ooh. love Mad Lions. Dude, I love Kramer. People rag, people bang on him like he's the biggest idiot in the world. He was an extremely successful hedge fund manager with an average return of 20% for his entire career, which spanned like 15 years, 20 years. That's a long time. You don't get that accidentally. He's a smart guy. And I think his stock advice is actually pretty sound. He just has a format which really turns people off. No, I think it turns people on. Well, I think I, it turns the wrong people on, though. It, I like it because it's obviously put on. Like the joke isn't that he. The joke isn't that he's squeezing some squeak toy. The joke is that he's making a really dumb joke. You see, that it's kind of a meta. Joke. No, no, no. That's not the problem that I have with that situation. The problem that I have is that he's bringing it down to like the lowest common denominator as far as his audience is concerned, yeah. who may not realize like what they're actually getting into. Yeah. And um, not, not. I guess it's it's not really to blame him. But uh, they can make really dumb decisions. Exactly, and, just get eaten alive. and then then they then they run you know they run the gambit on him. Right. I don't know how to feel about that because that's like saying that you can't responsibly have a show that talks about stocks and tries to bring it to a wide audience. I think no, that that's you a, can't. Uh, you can't act like it's the easiest thing in the world. But he doesn't. And if you watch his show over a period of time, okay, which I've done, maybe so. Like he says all the time. That um, that homework, homework, homework is the number one rule. You should only own between five and ten investments because but that's, nobody does their homework. I do. <laughs> Just saying. That's that's a fair in, statement. In, in high school, you don't really do your homework. I didn't. <laughs> but what he says all the time, look, if you can't do your homework, just get a mutual fund. Get some other guy to do it for you. He doesn't think that that's the best way to run your money, but if you don't it's have It's a time, safer way. Yeah, yeah, it's a safer way if you're not going to do your homework. Um, and he says two hours, or it's one hour per stock per week, and that's why you should own between five and ten stocks. Because if you own more than ten, you're going to spend all your hours. time doing that. Right. Actually, I think it's two hours it's per a, stock per week. It's if a you, job, then, yeah. And if you, you own be less than five stocks, you're not diversified. You can get eaten up if one of them falls down. So that's that's his thing. Yeah, I, I think he's a lot more responsible than people give him credit for. And his advice, I think, is spot on. I think he nailed the bank rally, and I think that he's nailing this mobile internet tsunami uh, thesis. That's his grand uh, investment thesis for the next five years. Okay, talk about this. The mobile internet tsunami. The idea is that companies that make products like smartphones and so on, yeah. that's going uh, to be as big of an industry changer as the internet was for computing or just the advent of the personal computer. That led to a yeah. bunch of industries. A lot of people became rich when that happened. Yeah. He thinks it's going to happen again with the mobile I think internet. It, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that, it's a, I think that he's correct in saying that. Unless um, we don't have any money to buy those smartphones. Right. There's a macroeconomic picture to yeah. consider. But you got the. I think but it's either way, like technologically, it's going to be just as important, yeah. whether economically. It's and it's going to drive growth in semiconductor stocks. Um, people and we'll discuss this in a we did, we did discuss it in the last podcast. Yeah, I'm invested in Symantec. They make software to design what? processors. Yeah, you did. yeah, and I think that they're going to benefit because now people are trying to make processors that are smaller, we just faster, have to, more power efficient. We, we just have to. In, in order for this to really work out well, we have to get rid of the monopoly that Intel has. But Intel doesn't have a monopoly because yeah. because they're big. They have a monopoly because they make the fastest chips. They're really good. But at they the don't job. make they don't make good chips for mobile platforms. That's true. They don't even try. Exactly. Which is why people go to Adam. which hopefully they'll that's that's like in the works. But uh, I'm pretty sure it's not in the next like three to four years. I kind of hope it isn't because I want to see more competition in the space. Yeah, like uh, Nvidia's got some cool stuff coming. But either way, we're, yeah. this is not a tech cast. That was a good ta- that was a good tangent though. I like that. One. All right. So uh, stocks. I mean bonds. Bonds, right? Why are the what are, what are the downsides? Okay, you the downside. That, um, 
What are the upsides? Uh, no, no, no. We didn't. We didn't discuss any of the downsides. Yeah, we were talking about uh, deflation. Um, or no, no, no. It was inflation. Yeah, I mean, we listed them, but we didn't say what they mean. Oh, all right. Oh, damn it. Now we have to actually discuss it. Um, okay, so we could just cut it out. So let's say we let's say that you buy, but I think the audience wants to hear the fundamentals of what's actually going on, don't you? I am the audience. <laughs> I am the law. So we've got these uh, bonds, and you let's say you bought a bond last month for a thirty-year T-bill. You're getting four point three percent interest, right? Okay. Um, and then a year from now, things are looking kind of grim. The Treasury goes to auction its bonds, and people aren't taking anything less than 10% interest, right? Yeah. So now, um, Joe Schmo or Donald Blue, you can go out and get a 10% yield on your T-bills. That sounds really... <laughs> for some reason, that sounds kind of sexual. So the next, so you can go out and get 10%. So do you want to buy a 4% bond for any reason? Absolutely not. No, which means that if Hampton, if I bought my bonds at 4% last year, it's tough for me to sell them now. I'm not going to be able to sell them for, you know, a hundred cents on the dollar. I'm going to have to sell them for eighty cents on the dollar or seventy cents on the dollar. They lose value. All right. Now you can hold on to them for thirty years, and you can get your four percent every year, and then end up getting your thousand. But you, but you're trapped in an illiquid situation, and then you have the risk of things like inflation, right? Or it, you're subject to all the forces that can happen in the next 30 years. Nobody mm-hmm. knows what's going to happen in 30 years, right? Yeah, it's a long time. So you can lose money because interest rates go up. And so if you hear on the on CNBC, they say, interest rates went up, so bonds go down, the price of bonds go down. That didn't make sense to me for a long time. That's the reason why. All right. Make sense? Let's, let's still make a guess for 30 years from now. 30 years from now, jeez. It, it, obviously, you can't make an educated guess. I have no idea. Uh, but just a guess. I think that somewhere down the line, we're going to see really rapid rates of inflation. We're probably going to see uh, debt defaults. from. Yeah, but 30 years, you can totally bounce back from that. Yeah, I agree. So we're going to see uh, a rapid increase in deflation or in inflation, okay? And there's going to be a bunch of economic hardship as a result of that. Uh, that'll take us maybe 10 years down the line. We're recovering from that phase, that uh, credit cycle or that economic cycle. We're coming out of that. Uh, we've probably got new economic policies. We've, we're not, we might have a constitutional amendment now that we have to balance the budget. We're going to behave more like the Eurozone where they actually have to keep like a 50%. You can't even be in the Eurozone and trade the Euro if you have more than 100% debt to GDP. Uh, Britain has like 50%. Germany is lower than that. It's like 40%. We're going to get our act together, and it's going to be really tough. So we're going to have maybe 15 years of hardship and then maybe uh, five years of good stuff and maybe a third party. What do you think? Um, and my, lots of cool technology. My guess is uh, very similar for most of what you just said. Yeah. But I think the coming out party is going to be much bigger than what you began to describe. The uh, the coming out party, I think, is going to be absolutely redonkulous. It'll be uh, it'll 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 make the oil boom look like a speck. Really? Yeah. Uh, reason being is because uh, I think by that point we'll finally have. Uh, gotten efficient efficiency rates on like solar panels uh high enough to where now the advancement of our technology right. is our only limitation to energy uh, our ability to harvest energy right and once you get there then like the sky's the limit so then we'd have free energy and that could lead to a yeah huge... but not just free energy or or extremely cheap energy but you have the ability to start manning space um uh, okay like doing those whole all the sci-fi taking stuff it to that level yeah, I don't think it's going to be us that's doing it. To be honest, uh, maybe I not. Think, the, uh, I think yes. it's going to be China. 
I think that China, they... Really? Yeah, I guess you're right. They have a huge... They have like a $2 trillion surplus or something like that. Um, and they have our... They're already starting out with our rocket tech because we sold them that stuff. Yeah, they, they've got a fleet of engineers that right now just work on, you know, manning power plants and things... Or not power plants, but factories and things like that. They don't innovate because they don't have to. Their economy is based on exports. They don't want to. But eventually, they're going to start deleveraging from the U.S. dollar. They're going to buy commodities, which is what they've been doing for the last year. And they're going to, they're going to uh, decouple. And they're going to become a, a country that can cover itself right. just from its own internal demand. I don't know. Um, they gonna, they're going to have to do something about their, uh, their education system, though, as far as their, their higher level education. Not I think the, so. Not the younger. Um, because I'm pretty sure we still hold... <laughs> I just drank water again. He's yeah. laughing at me. I think I think we still hold uh, a pretty prestigious level um, relative to like every other country yeah, on the higher education. We, we have really good higher. And education. as far, as long as we're able to keep that and uh, you know train within our own ranks as well as train everybody else in the world, right? Uh, we have a big we have a big advantage once that role, once that uh, ball comes around. But I'm going on the side that if you're rich, you can fix that. But if you're poor. It's tough to take your Yeah, if you're rich, you, you can fix that. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. No, but I think they're, they've proven themselves to be really wise, financially speaking. And so okay. if they realize that that's how they're going to gain a permanent edge, they might do that. Whereas with us, if we become poor because we're no longer very competitive, then we might lose that edge because we can't spend on higher education. You know, I just uh, – some this might actually be a little offensive. But, uh, no, no. <laughs> it just came to mind um, – I remember back when I was a lot younger, I used to watch, like, Godzilla movies and stuff. Yeah. And it was always extremely strange to me to see, like, Asian rockets in space. Oh, God. <laughs> and, like, to, to realize that that might actually be the way we're going to stay in space or get into space and stay there. It's kind of mind-boggling. By what? By, by a bunch of Asians in space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. It's like... I don't know, like, that, that just seems kind of strange to me. You always imagined it would be John Q. American going up there and exploring space? Yeah. 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 Like, it's okay, it would be okay if there were Asians up there, but it wouldn't be a Chinese flag. It'd be an American flag. It'd be an American flag on the moon and on Mars. Yeah. America. The once bold, the once beautiful. Still bold, still beautiful. Hopefully uh, ready to take on the next millennium. And hopefully in a partnership, a peaceful partnership with our Chinese brothers and sisters and our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters. And, you know, uh, and that's just, uh, that's the opposite of editorializing. That's just being completely mushy. So <laughs> nobody will get mad at you. <laughs> okay. So, um, bonds. We'll stroke everybody. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So the risk, uh, of bonds is that first of all, you can, uh, Interest rates can go up, so the value can go down. Uh, secondly, inflation can kick in. And what if inflation is really high, then your bond, you bought a bond at 4%. Well, what if inflation is 7%, 8%, 9%? That damn piece of paper is losing you money because the value is just not there. You're losing value from inflation faster than you're gaining value from the bond. Yeah, that's terrible. Right, that stinks. And you're locked in for 30 years. Uh... Unless you sell it, but people don't want it anymore, so you're going to have to sell it for, again... 50 cents on the dollar. So, um, I mean, but most people, when they buy bonds... They do now, for sure. That's, uh, a lot of people are saying, a lot of the smart money, in my opinion, is saying, this is the short of the decade. You should short bonds, which means you should bet against them. Okay. But no, I was going to say, uh, like, my experience with bonds are like, um, when I was born, my grandma... Grandmother gave you a bond. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. 
Other than that, I don't really know anybody that deals with bonds. Oh, well, if you get a mutual fund, mutual funds typically are about 50% fixed income. Fixed income means bonds. And 50% uh, or close to 50% equities. Equities is another way of saying stocks. Okay. So mutual funds are composed very highly of bonds. Uh, and also, you can just buy them. You know, you can buy them in any in most brokerage accounts, I believe. Okay. Uh, so, so what are the what are the other risks? The other risk is the risk of default. California, for instance, has a lot of debt. They cannot. So there's there's state and federal bonds. Yes, there. You can also get municipal bonds. You can get um, corporate bonds. You can get corporate bonds that are ris- really risky. Those are called junk bonds, um, but they pay a high rate, right? Because it's some young up and coming company that really wants the debt, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, you can get bonds from all sorts you of... You love that debt. Everybody does, buddy. So there's uh, a lot of different places you can get bonds, and there's a risk of default. The prime example being, for instance, Greece. They might not be able to pay their bonds. Or California. Um, they are unable to print money because it's part of... They, they can't. Only the Fed can print money, right? right. Um, so they have a budget that is... They can print IOUs, though. Uh, yes, and they have been doing so. <laughs> they have a giant uh, budget shortfall right now. They're, it's like 50% of their budget uh, they can't meet. So like they're basically, their budget is twice as big as what they... I didn't realize it was that much. That's ridiculous. You want to hear a shocking fact about California? You know how much long-term debt it has? No idea. Only 4%. That's tiny. 4% of what? Of their GDP, of California. Oh, okay, okay. Only 4%. Yeah, usually measure Wow. That. I know, really low, huh? Really and low. They, wow. Well, the reason that they're in a they're in a bind. Uh, so, is that supposed to? Are you supposed to be able to extrapolate as far as the whole nation is concerned? Like, what kind of a situation we're in based on that? On well, those? all of our debt is federal debt because the because well, there are some states I'm sure that have higher or, or smaller rates of debt. No, I mean like the idea that four uh, percent in there like out of money because they can't print money. Well, the the versus... conclusion you draw is that the reason that their bonds are really risky right now isn't because they're this hugely indebted. You know, state. It's not like they have a ton of debt to pay off. They have very, very, very little debt to pay off. Okay. The problem with them is that they can't meet their budget requirements. It's really tough for them to balance their budget this year. Um, and they've got all these. Part of that is they have debts that they need to pay, like debts, short-term debts that are maturing, and they can't pay them. So what are they going to do? They can't print money. They can't get more tax revenue. They're sort of in a bind. So even though they're a pretty healthy economy um, in some ways. They, they just have no way of paying it. So the risk of default is extremely high unless the government prints money and bails them out. Okay. So I guess, I guess the details of how they got into that situation are like a, like a whole other podcast. Yeah, I mean, they, they spent more money than they had. <laughs> There's your answer. They wanted to spend money on a lot of different things, and no one's willing to say, hey, we don't have the money. Right, yeah, that's why. So anyway, you've got the risk of default. You've got the risk of inflation. You've got the risk of the value going down because interest rates go up. Which is why I'm going to go on the record right here and say bonds are a horrible, horrible investment for the next five years because I think inflation will occur. I think that our government is going to find it increasingly difficult to fund their deficits, which means inflation, which means bond uh, uh, interest rates will go up. Um, and I think that the risk of default from states and municipalities is very real and very high. Don't buy bonds. That's my advice. So bonds are not a safe investment. I don't think they are. No. <laughs> I think they're an extraordinarily risky investment right now. All right. Well, then on to the next safe investment. There you go. So the next asset class is stocks. Stocks. Let's do that. You can get stocks that are growth stocks, stocks that grow. You can get stocks that are value stocks, stocks that pay you a dividend. 
if we're gonna, stocks that value stocks that value <laughs> stocks that value you as a person as a human being yeah they uh they sort of take on a personality of their own and they love grow and cherish you that's the free market for you well thanks for joining us on this podcast <laughs> i love it that's my favorite joke that really is my favorite joke to just take some stupid line and say well thanks for joining us you're going to hear me reusing that one over and over again um, so stocks, we're going to talk about safe investments. So we're not going to talk about the growth stocks, which go up and down and they're volatile. We're going to talk about value stocks, specifically really big value stocks that are mature, huge companies, quality companies, blue chip stocks, bada bing, bada boom, my friend, blue chip stocks. Boom! 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 <laughs> <laughs> Still got it. I love that. <laughs> uh, blue chip stocks, that's right. An example of a blue chip stock. Let's say McDonald's, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. The next level up. Johnson & Johnson, Donald Co., Hampton Co. Yeah, no, it's DRBLLC. IBM, Intel. Uh, you know, IBM and Intel are a little bit... Uh, yeah, they seem like they go be- between growth and blue chip. ExxonMobil. British Petroleum. Well, ExxonMobil more so than British Petroleum. Enron. Uh, AIG.com. <laughs> <laughs> so these are blue chip stocks. They, they've got, they've got like a ton of money. They, they're so big that they've expanded their operations all throughout the world. Uh, and generally, they're able to make money every single year and deliver a dividend every single year. Altria, maybe one of the best ones. Uh, okay. Parent of Philip Morris cigarettes. Um, another aspect of a blue chip stock is a lot of times they are called secular growth stocks, secular growth stocks. The opposite of that would be a cyclical stock. So, Donald, what do you think is the difference between a cyclical stock and a secular growth stock? Um, a secular growth stock probably grows okay. secularly. Yes. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, what do you think a cyclical stock is? Yeah, it, it probably goes up and down based on, based on popularity. Uh, actually, popularity is more short-term. Cyclical stocks go up and down based on the health of the economy. When okay. times are good, companies like General Electric can just mint money because everybody wants more industrial equipment. Companies are spending money on CapEx. So General Electric is your classic cyclical stock. Oil stocks are also cyclical stocks because when times are good, there's more demand for oil. Yeah. Price goes up, they make a ton of money. Right. All right. Uh, secular growth stocks are things like cigarettes. Times are bad. People still buy cigarettes. Times are good. People don't go out and buy twice as many cigarettes. Right. Right. Johnson and Johnson. They make band aids. So Times pretty. are bad. You get band aids. Times are good. They stay the same. Right. Okay. And they, they just sort of make money on a steady basis. Coca Cola is another good example. Um, they say cyclical, secular growth stocks are Actually, things that you can smoke, eat. Or medicate yourself with legally. Yeah, you know what's weird is that when time, whenever when times are good for me, those things that you're calling secular stocks, I ignore. What? Like as far as the products are concerned, like when times are really good, I don't buy Coke. Like I don't go out and like buy ice cream and stuff like that. But when times are bad, when I don't have a lot of money to go and buy the things that I actually want, which right. usually costs a lot more money, right. then I'm like, oh, let's get back to the simple things. Tech is also considered a cyclical stock, and that might be one of the – this falls into the mobile internet idea. People are thinking right now that an iPhone is a, uh, is a luxury purchase. And it'll be no, cyclical. it's definitely not anymore. Like when times are good, people will buy it. When times are bad, they'll stop no, buying it. That's not the case. People are going to start figuring out in the next ten years that people like you and me, the new generation, they that's need their thing. freaking smartphones, and yeah. they'll take that before they buy Coca Cola. Especially, I mean, it, especially when it costs ninety nine dollars for. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go and get a cell phone and have a plan, right? 
hundred dollars for a phone is that's that's a that's that's kind of a normal expected thing. It's either you get the free phone or you get the next one up, and it's about a hundred dollars. Right now, if you go from free phone, which is like crappy feature phone, to iPhone, mm-hmm. that difference there, right? You're gonna go with the iPhone, right? Um, unless they, uh, unless like, you know, Android or somebody else fills that void with the free phones. Or, but there'll be Android people and they will go for that Android phone. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, right now. Yeah. But eventually there's going to be free smartphones. And um, it's just going to, I hope not. Well, there definitely will be. You think it'll be, free? I mean, oh, the, just, it'll become the new, uh, Razor. Like the Razor became yeah. a free phone. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. But yeah, but people are going to, I think that people are going to start setting aside money for premium phones. Maybe not premium phones, but at least middle-of-the-line phones. Because it's going to be like televisions. Everybody needs a television. Yeah, they should definitely change their model as far as how they, uh, they price to the, to the consumer. I hope so. In a Direct Google, billing. Google's, just pay. Google's just, trying to do that. Oh, that'd be awesome. I would just pay $700 for my smartphone, and then instead of paying $100 a month for my plan, I'll pay $50 a month. And oh, I would, no, it would be cheaper than that if they didn't have to subsidize the phone <sighs> hardware. Yeah, it'd be it'd probably be in like the thirty dollar range. Oh, you would make up for your your outlay in like six months, and yeah, you would make up for it in ten months. You would make seven hundred dollars, which more than makes up for it because you still have to pay money for your phone when you sign a contract. But no, I'm saying if they if they did not subsidize the hardware, right? I'm it, s- yeah. So in this model, you pay seven hundred for your phone, right? And then you pay thirty dollars a month, right? In our scenario right now, we pay two hundred dollars for a phone. We pay a hundred dollars a month. Total cost over twelve months. $1,400. In scenario B, the one that you and I want, 700 up front, 30 times 12 is, quick math, Donald, uh, $360. So that'd be $1,060. So you've already, you've already saved money after one year. Yeah. That's neither here nor there. All right. Okay. So stocks. You get a good blue chip stock, something like Coca-Cola. That's a good example. It does uh, 90% of its business overseas. So even if the U.S. economy tanks... Coca-Cola is still selling things overseas. And in fact, if we engage in inflationary tactics, if we start monetizing the debt... It's still okay because they have so much business overseas. They get money in the Eurozone. They get money from China. That money eventually comes back to the U.S. and there's an exchange rate. And it's a very... They'll get a ton more dollars for all the stuff they've sold over there. So it actually kind of helps their business. Because they spend... Yeah, because everybody over there is buying more of their product because it's so cheap. Yeah. Right? No, no, no. The product is still going to be priced the same over there. Mm-hmm. But there's an exchange rate. And when it comes back here, you know, if the euro, if, ten, if it takes $10 to make a euro, then they're making 10 times as many dollars now, right? Okay. From the eurozone. And then they're building their factories in America and they're spending dollars for them. Right. Yeah. So the only time it really hurts is if there is hyperinflation. <clears throat> then everybody gets Everybody loses. Obviously, everybody yeah, right. loses. Um, Except well, for the guy with gold in a garden. Exactly. Except for that guy. Even him, though. There's a lot of gunmen out there who want to take your gold. In, in an arsenal. Yes. Guy who has a garden, some animals, some gold, right. in an arsenal. That's who wins in hyperinflation. Which sounds crazy. Basically, the guy who's ready to set up a little fiefdom. Yeah, that's crazy. And the money and the arms to do it. That's who wins. Like, I mean, uh, I kind of I kind of like that whole like Mad Max sort of thing. Yeah, so do I. But at the same time, that's so crazy. We're, we're all secretly waiting for the zombie invasion, I think. Uh, so... We've got companies that have a large overseas presence who make a ton of money. They can cover their costs, and they're going to give you dividends. Those companies, in a way, can be pretty safe. The price might go up and down, and it does go up and down. Um, But it doesn't go up and down quite as much. And instead of being locked into um, a treasury bond where you're locked in for 30 years, 
and the amount of, it, of interest it pays you every year is never going to change, those companies raise their dividends over time. And you can always sell it, usually at more than what you originally paid for it. So you're more liquid, there's more chance of growth. In my opinion, especially in this climate, they're a safer investment than bonds. Yeah, especially since everybody's running away from them, right? Especially because everyone's running away from them. But people are sort of starting to file into the blue chip stocks too because remember, people are seeking safety. So they're not super unpopular right now. Uh, I bought Altria last year when it was 16 bucks. Now it's 20 bucks. Um, you yeah. know. Okay. So, um, well then let's talk about uh, commodities. Let's do it. Commodities. Name me some commodities. Um, got uh, my junk. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> no, uh, you've got. You've got gold, platinum, oil, silver, uh, land, land, grain, grain, uh, cows, cows, bears, <laughs> bears, rape parties, <laughs> rape parties. <laughs> that's a commodity. My, well, that's a perfect description. Couldn't have done any better myself. <laughs> Um, so commodities are things, precious metals, supplies, um, whenever inflation goes up, they retain their value. There's the old phrase in, uh, in 1920, a $10 gold piece and a $10 bill both bought a man's suit. In 2008, that $10 gold piece uh, was worth $1,000 and it bought uh, a man's suit. That $10 bill buys a pair of socks. So that's the, that's the value of owning a commodity. So are men's suit? The commodity? Mm, yes, I believe they are. But they, they go out of fashion, right? Okay. So it's not one particular suit. It's the idea. The idea of the, the suit. The quintessential suit. Exactly. Exactly. So what are some of the risks associated with a commodity, Donald? Like let's say we went out and we've got some gold, um, some gold bullion, or maybe a gold ETF. What's the uh, risk? The risk is deflation. Uh, well, right? there, there's a more immediate risk. Um, you said it earlier. Um, popularity. Okay, yeah. I was about to say suits. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, popularity. <laughs> uh, the problem is that those prices go up and down. They alter. Yeah, yeah. Gold has lost. It was at twelve hundred at the beginning of the year, and now it's at like eleven hundred or something. It lost. I think it's back up to twelve hundred now. But in January, in those thirty days, it went down by eight percent. Okay. Sometimes it goes down by more than that. You can see corrections in a year, like an intra-year correction of like 20%. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty drastic change. Volatile, right? Um, It's not usually that volatile, but hey, it can be. So there's a risk associated with volatility, obviously. Yeah, but either way, it it seems like it shouldn't matter because uh, either way it's going to buy what it buys. Um, Not true. Not true, because the popularity swings... So then that guy is saying it's just a bunch of Over a very hogwash. long period of time, over 50 years, that's, that's going to be the fact every single time. Gold is going to get you basically what it got you then if you just give it a long enough time horizon. But in the short term, that might not be true, right? Because you might have things like in 2008, everybody's pulling their money out of the stocks and bonds and the, and the gold. And so gold went down in 2008 to something. It was in, the, it was in three digits. Instead Who of is this guy? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? This guy that made this quote. Patient. Uh, it was a girl. She, she's a female author. That makes sense. <laughs> no, <I'm> just... <laughs> no, Podcast uh, over. Uh, no, but uh, what do you call it? 
So you've got a uh, you've got this situation. Yeah. And uh, it's got the situation. It's got six pack abs. Oh God. <laughs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> Let's save ourselves from the gutters of reality television. Yeah. Um, all right. So gold. Uh, one of the risks is it can go up and down. Right. right. The, one of the. That's not, I mean, that's not really a risk because everything goes up and down. Right. Not. Uh, <laughs> not so much. Well, people have this idea that bonds don't go up and down, and it, and it's kind of true. Like the intraday uh, volatility for bonds is really, really, really low. They change only over the span of weeks, months, years. Bonds do not change intraday, or they change very, very, very little. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas gold is more volatile, but you could make the case that because we're in uncertain times, we could have inflation, we could have deflation. Um, gold will lose its value in terms of dollars if the if the market deflates, but it'll still have the same intrinsic value, right? Um, whether you have inflation or deflation, gold is sort of rock steady. So now, why can't... Uh Kind of back to the last podcast where we were talking about how the Fed influences, um, you know, the value of the dollar. Right. Why can't uh, we give the dollar a uh, a fixed? Well, maybe not fixed, but like a sort of like an ideal intrinsic value. Well, that's what we try to do. That was. Um, did I forget the name of that stupid conference? Bretton. The post World War Bretton Woods. Thank you. Donald, you just saved me. All right. <laughs> That's what happened at Bretton Woods. They established, uh, uh, they used to have the gold standard prior to World War One, or War. It was two. I think it was two. Yeah, prior to World War Two, we had the gold standard. Um, Britain floated its currency. America during the Depression floated its currency as well. Mm-hmm. And then in Bretton Woods, they said, "Okay, we're going to no longer trade in in, uh, in gold currency, or we're not going to have like." dollars that are backed based on gold, but we're going to have this notional idea that um, gold is worth $35 an ounce, and we're only going to make as much money as is needed to um, keep this true, right? Mm-hmm. And the government's just going to tell everyone, hey, gold is worth $35 an ounce, which means this dollar is worth one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold. And if we tell them that for long enough, then everything... Then they'll fine, believe it. Right? And they did, actually. That's the funny thing. Like, in the, in the 60s, you could be working at, uh, at an investment firm, and you would say, I think gold's going to go up. And they'd be like, you're some kind of idiot. Gold is $35 an ounce. The government said it. Well, there's something called math. And if you make more dollars, then over time, that's going to change. And in 1971, Nixon segregated the dollar from gold for good, and that caused the... Uh, the Nixon shock, I think is what they call yeah. it. And the price of gold and of all commodities in the 70s went whoop, up through the roof. The In the 70s, the you know you know how technology was really big in like the 90s and through like 2000? Yeah. Commodities was the story in the 70s. All right. So uh, what are the upsides of the commodities? The upsides are, first of all, inflation protection. Okay. The other thing is uh, they're not making any more of it. So you can actually have a, a very a very large upside in something like gold or silver. Um, silver particularly. I'm, I'm invested in silver right now. Um, because silver is used not only as an investment vehicle, it's also used in industrial applications. Uh, oil is another. It's, it's kind of like a mix between gold and oil. Like oil is an industrial you know, commodity. Right. It's used to power things. So if you have more supply than It's also demand. used to lubricate things. It's, it's used for... It comes full circle. The bear rate parties. There you go. Yeah. They, uh, they Thank love you their oil. On this I think it's called uh, petroleum jelly. Yes, that's is right. what it's called. 
wow, we're juvenile. <laughs> so oil um, is strictly an industrial commodity. And if you have more demand than you have supply, like if you have India and China and developing countries, they want more of it. But we can't take more out of the ground. Eventually, the price is going to go up. Silver kind of works the same way, but it's also used as an investment vehicle. Um, precious metal, yeah. Right, it's a precious metal. So it's got kind of a, a double whammy thing going on, which is why I really like silver in the next in the next two to three years. Um, but yeah, so the upside... So have they... I mean, okay. Have they not made uh, advances in the mining of silver? Is that why you think the demand for it is going to grow so much? Well, you need to find silver mines. It's not so Okay, much so we, we haven't found in silver mines very quickly. We have a certain amount of it out there, and I can't rattle off the numbers right now, right. Um, but it's some odd metric tons of, of silver, um, and we need more than that over the next five years. And we'll go into a commodity podcast at some point, and we can discuss that in more detail. Okay. But you get that from the National Geologic Survey, um, or from the National Geologic Institute, and uh, that'll they'll say, hey, look, this is how much silver we think is still yeah, in the ground. USGS.com. Really? I think they do that as well. Dude, look at you. You demand. <laughs> yeah, so you can, and then you can just say, well, how much demand is there? So that's the idea there. Oh, it's not .com, it's .gov, by the way. Oh, USGS.gov. Yeah. yeah. So those are the ups and downs of owning a commodity. It is less risky if you think that we might have a really turbulent economy because you're anchored to a precious metal, which has an intrinsic value. It is more risky if you're worried about intraday or intraweek volatility. But if you're going to be making investments in any way, you should, you should sort of step back and not care too much about what's happening intraday. If you worry about what's happening every, every day, you're going to, you're going to pull your hair out. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to die young. Um, you, have to, you have to think over the long term. And over the long haul, commodities, I think, are a really good investment, given that we're printing money left and right, and we could enter an inflationary mode. Uh, and in fact, I think that we're going to in the next two to five years. Okay. Let's talk about the fourth uh, one. Yeah, mutual funds. Mutual funds. You want to start? Um, well, well, I'll tell you what I do know about mutual funds. Go for it. Is that they're not as good as life insurance. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, so anyway, yeah, they uh, they basically pool together all of those assets that we just spoke of. Right. Stocks, bonds, uh, and commodities. Right. And they try and spread the risk out between those as much as they can, and hopefully in proportions that are most advantageous for the person buying the mutual fund. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, as far as the risks and the benefits are concerned, mm. uh, not risks and the benefits, but... Uh, the, the risky side and the non-risky exactly. side. Exactly. Yeah. Um, What's a high-risk scenario for mutual funds? Well, the, the market goes really bad. They're very, very, subject, sub, uh, they're very susceptible to the macroeconomic condition. Whenever, in 2008, whenever stocks cratered, um, whenever the stock market, whenever everything cratered in 2008, mutual funds went down as well, sometimes by as much as 50%. One thing didn't crater. What's that? Never mind. <laughs> Mouth it to me? That's what she said. <laughs> It would be followed by, that's what she said. One thing didn't crater, that's what she said. One thing didn't crater. <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't get your sense of humor. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> just, just pantomime everything. Uh, okay, so the mutual funds in uh, 2008 uh, and into 2009 went down sharply. <clears throat> the problem with mutual funds is that 
they might have less intraday volatility as, say, one specific stock or a commodity or many other asset classes. But unfortunately, over a one-year period or a two-year period, they can be extremely volatile. They can lose all of their value. And in fact, uh, there's a, I think there's a systematic problem with mutual funds, and that's that fund managers don't really get properly incentivized for making a ton of money. Um, if they make a lot of money for that client, for their clients, um, they'll get a portion of, uh, they'll get probably a really fat bonus, and they'll get a pat on the back, and they'll have slightly enhanced job security. If they lag behind their peers, then they get fired. So there's this inequality in your incentive base. You're basically incentivized to be two to three percent better than all of your competition, um, but you're not, but not to fall behind them. So there's a really strong disincentive and not a very strong, you know, positive incentive. The problem with this is that if everything's falling down, like in 2008 and 2009, they don't have a very big incentive not to fall down. They have an incentive to stay with the herd and to just do exactly what everybody else is doing to their ruin. Yeah, because that's what they're accustomed to, right? Because if they if they do bad and everybody else is doing bad, they then don't get okay. fired. Yeah. yeah, they're not going to get fired. They're not even really going to get reprimanded. Because they're doing what they're supposed to do. Because everybody, because in the performance review, you're going to go to your boss and you're going to be like, yeah, I lost money, but everybody lost money. You can't right. blame me. Right. So I think yeah, that's, that's sort of a systemic problem. The other thing is that, it, look, it's a herd mentality. You know how it is when you work at a job. You sort of get into the mode where you don't think outside the box and try to come up with the best solutions to problems. You try to come up with the solutions to problems. Yeah, they, are, they beat that into you, right. essentially. You, you want to get along with everyone else. You know, yeah, I mean, like, your, your manager doesn't want you thinking because they're supposed to be thinking. But then when they're not thinking, yeah, they, won't, they don't want you to make them look bad. That being said, there are plenty of really smart fund managers out there. And mutual funds are a really good investment vehicle if you're not going to do that much research into what's a good investment and what's a bad investment. You just need to pick the right one. But they are risky, for sure. They have a, they have a very large downside, and they have a, an upside, but a, a, a large upside as well, but a slightly limited upside because they own so much different stuff that you know, they, can't, they can't have this super high pop if any one thing goes off because they're diversified over like – a hundred different stocks and a hundred different bonds, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So those are mutual funds. So let's, uh, let's cut to the chase, shall we? What should we do if we want to, uh, <laughs> after 45 minutes, let's cut to the chase. <laughs> let's get the climax. All right. That's what she said. So we're going to, we're going to talk about what you should do if you want to preserve your money in the next five years. Should you just, uh, keep it in cash? Well, no, then you're subject to inflationary risk. Right. Right. Should you just put it in a... Uh, in a hole in the ground? Buy some gold and put it in a hole in the ground? Well, mm-hmm. then you're subject to the risk of the commodity market. Exactly. So there's... What's something you might be able to do to fix this problem? Um, it's one word. It's a buzzword. Diversify. There you go. Why not take one-third of your money... And do what the mutual fund does, but pay attention. Do what the mutual fund does but also try to think for yourself. Instead of rushing into bonds, which is what most mutual funds are doing right now, maybe you shouldn't be part of the herd. Maybe you should put maybe one-third of your money into commodities, one-third of your money into mutual funds, and one-third of your money into really solid blue-chip stocks. And that, I think, is your best strategy for having a safe investment. Yeah. I'd, I'd I'd probably put a lot of money into 
uh, some petroleum jelly commodity. <laughs> Returning again to the petroleum jelly. Um, yeah, I'd also put some money into uh, more petroleum jelly. And, yeah. Yep. And what do you use to kill Ooh. bears? Uh, Guns and ammo. Bear traps. Guns and ammo. Who uses bear traps, really? Come on. But either way, uh, I think that pretty much sums everything up. What do you think, Donald? About what? If you wanted to have a safe, what, what's your strategy for a safe investment? <clears throat> oh, I, I already know your strategy. I don't, Life I don't insurance. I, <laughs> We're not going to get into that. Here. But okay, so taking so that's my that's my investment advice to people who want a safe investment. Cash is not safe. It's not safe. You can have inflation. You'll lose the value of your cash. Also, you're not gaining anything on your money. And there's a certain amount of risk associated with not gaining enough money that you can eventually retire. Like, you need your money to grow. Yeah. If it's not growing, then you're standing still at zero, and you're not going to have enough money when you really need it. Um, yeah, my, uh, I guess my plan is overthrow the Fed. Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, it's, I don't know. I find it kind of, uh, kind of messed up how you can if you don't play this game where you try to make the money that you do have yeah. work for you, yeah. if you try to just do like the simple, honest life, yeah. and just you save get, money. Yeah, you get screwed. And it's terrible. And there's no reason that that should happen. You know, back in the day, in the uh, late 70s and into the 80s, um, you could get a government backed bond uh, at between 10 and 15%. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculously awesome. Ridiculously awesome. And so. We had a stable marketplace. We had a tight monetary policy, and we had very little debt. And so, why don't we do that again? Uh, because we're committed to the other way of thinking, which is we're going to stimulate our way into prosperity. Um, we're going to make sure that if anything goes wrong, we don't have to feel all the negative effects of that. Thank you for continuing to call me. I'm going to ignore you once again. But that's neither here nor there. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole podcast. Uh, I think that's basically it. I, I feel like we should have some really slam bangaroo action ending, but I don't know that we've got anything. Um, well, yeah, if you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with us. Yeah. Uh, in Hampton, where can you be reached? Uh, Hampton US, H A M P T O N U S, at gmail.com. And I can be reached at. Donnie, D-O-N-N-Y-471 at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at Donnie471. We can also be called and left a voicemail for mm. at 337-376-0406. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Y'all have a good night. Or day.